0: All right, everyone, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode. I'm very sad that Sally's not joining us, but I'm excited because this is the first time, first of all, I've had three people in my little home studio here for the podcast. These are two people who have been on the podcast before, and we're being joined by a fourth person, through the wonders of cyberspace, Josh Goldman on the end of the Skype line there with us. So Josh, welcome back to Vernacular. But my guests in studio with me, Chandler and Lara Ride, who are Sally's brother-in-law and sister, respectively. <laughs> I had to, had to say that slowly to make sure I get it right. So Chandler and Lara, welcome back to Vernacular. Yeah, great to be
1: Thanks back. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, super excited to have you guys actually here in the studio. Every time we've had you on before, it's been the, uh, the wonders of technology, Like like Josh is joining us tonight.
2: Look, I'm not part of the, uh, I'm not, I'm not part of the family, but I am part of the vernacular
0: family. (laughs) Exactly. I think it counts. Yeah. We're all one big happy vernacular family over here. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to talk about Ad Astra today. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, we had a little discussion about the correct pronunciation of Latin, but we'll just go with that. Chandler and Josh are filmmakers. Lara, I think we can uh, fairly, fairly call an artist who has a keen eye for film. And so I thought you three would be great people to talk to about at Astra, because there's a lot of art to talk about in this film. There's some really good cinematography, uh, maybe a questionable plot line, although I think we can get to that. And I think there's a lot to unpack here. So I'd love to talk about it. This is in theaters right now. It opened two weekends ago. I think by the time we're recording this or we are releasing this, it'll be three weekends ago. Um, But we've, we've all had a chance to see it. I will give a spoiler warning at the outset of this conversation we will be spoiling away. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want spoilers, you might want to pause and come back and listen to this later. If you have seen it, you know, go ahead and keep listening. If you haven't seen it, but don't mind spoilers, then also go ahead and keep listening, but we will be spoiling away. So I want to get to everyone's impressions and maybe Josh, will start with you. What do you think of Ad Astra? What are your overall impressions of this movie?
2: Uh <sighs> Okay. I really, I really wanted to like this movie more than I did. I think that I was listening to Vernacular's episode. I think the last episode you guys did, where you're talking about things that you were excited about, and I think Zach, you mentioned that you really like space movies. Sci-fi. Yeah, this was on the list, and I do too. I just, I, I didn't love this. I really wanted to love it, and I think part of the problem is I go to movies and I love movies because of their emotional resonance. And This movie was sort of set up for that because the main plot point is Brad Pitt's relationship with his father who's been missing for 16 years And it's sort of the toll that's taken on him. I just don't feel like the writer-director uh, Nailed it. I feel like he it, it sort of came up short and so that for me I really wanted to be moved by this movie I really wanted to to feel something and there were there were moments where I felt that but overall, I wasn't left with that feeling. And I will say, I, I think we might talk about this in terms of critiques, but the one thing that, and I've heard other people talk about this too, that I think brought the movie down a little bit was the reliance on the Brad Pitt voiceover throughout the entire movie. Yeah, we'll, because we'll
0: one talk of the more things about that. that. I, <laughs> yeah, I was, I, one I, of the that's, things that's definitely, I'm right, I'm right there with you, Josh. That was one of the things that agrees. drove me nuts.
1: Like too much
0: voiceover. Like, What is this, 1995? Let's get this out of here. <laughs>
2: Well, one of the things that I thought that I heard as a as sort of an analysis of this is that they had such a good device built in to the movie where they could have used that as his voiceover. So he does these psychological evaluations throughout the movie. That was a perfect device to have him explain to the audience the things that they needed to explain. But then for some reason there was this other voiceover. Yeah. And I think that that for me was distracting. I think it worked in some places and in other places it just felt so on the nose and I didn't love that choice.
0: Yeah, so on that point about the voiceover and how they could have done it in the psyche vows, I was talking about this exact criticism with Sally, and I was comparing it to The Martian. And The Martian has this problem to an even greater extent because Matt Damon's character is all by himself for pretty much the entire duration of the movie. But instead of using this voiceover that's just too on the nose and makes you you, uh, you feel like you're watching some sort of weird psych drama... Instead, he's doing his logs, and even though no one's viewing those logs, he's recording them for posterity. So we get this intimate, uh, it, what feels like an almost relational conversation with Matt Damon about what Matt Damon's feeling in the moment, and it felt so much more natural and genuine than the Brad Pitt voiceover. And, and I'm, I want to pivot here to Lara, and Lara, I'm going to ask you about your impressions, but just to give our our listeners an idea of the the heights to which the this voiceover sometimes aspires. Here's a here's a couple of clips from the trailer to this movie. I do what I do because of my dad. He gave his life through the pursuit of knowledge. Because up there is where our story is gonna to be told. So I'm sorry, I'm I'm blanking on the last name of Roy uh, McBride. Thank you. We just talked about it. So Roy McBride is Brad Pitt or Brad Pitt is Roy McBride, I guess. And he is in the he's in he's in uh, U.S. Space Command, which is really, I think, like the Space Force. Right. I think that's basically what we're supposed to take away from this. It's 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 basically
1: Space Force Space Comm. Yeah. So
0: Space Command, Space Comm. But for all intents and purposes, it's it's the Space Force, because the setting is the not-too-distant future. I think it's the near future or something, and they say in the, uh, the opening credits. And so Roy McBride is an astronaut in the Space Force. His father is a legendary astronaut in the Space Force, Clifford or Cliff McBride, and his father's been on this mission to deep space, specifically to Neptune, uh, to do space exploration and find out if there's any intelligent life out there. And so Roy McBride is following in his father's footsteps and he's very conscious of this throughout the entire film
3: what did he find out there in the abyss the enemy up here is not a person or a thing
1: it's the endless void The world awaits our discovery,
0: my son. So I think that pretty accurately illustrates why I had such high expectations for this movie going in. And Lara, I know we were chatting before we started recording here, and you were sharing with me that you also were pretty excited to see it, but you had some hesitations based on the trailer because it seemed like it might be a little bit re- reaching a little bit too much. So yeah, what-
3: I I actually I saw the trailer and I was I immediately wrote it off as being oh like this this is going to be really ambitious, but I don't think it's gonna me I, I it just it looked like it looked too ambitious to yeah. me and so i kind of it like went to the back of my mind until chandler brought it up again and was really excited about it i
1: basically told her that we had to see it yeah i
3: was like oh really I, okay so we watched it um and i just i agree i think that um it was overly ambitious in what it it was it was i think that it was uh it asked a, a lot of Really good philosophical questions mm-hmm. that ultimately um, they didn't land. I I just I don't think that they landed very well. Yeah. Um, that they. Um, I think that it was the whole film was really undermined by. Um, yeah. By yeah. So, like some those like certain storytelling devices mm-hmm. that were just too obvious like the voiceover like the voice like well yeah the voiceover plus the the like the brad pitt sit down how are you feeling yeah, yeah. like the those those logs
0: all the psyche bouts. Um, because basically yeah so he had to at these various points in his mission i think it was basically daily he had to do like a psychological evaluation yeah. so that some ai entity could approve him for continuing the mission. Yeah. And so he would sit, sit down and have these conversations with himself, but they weren't even that insightful. I thought, well,
3: that's the thing. There wasn't uh, Chandler and I were talking and we were saying that it would have, I think those would have been a better plot device if there, if there had been more at stake.
1: Well, so I I think that um, there were a lot of really interesting things that uh, were set up that I think didn't pan out as much as they could have Mm -hmm. um, in the writing
0: um, and wait so the so in idea they were good in execution they were poor Basically, I, I mean that
1: at the beginning there were certain elements that I thought were intriguing about those uh, psyche vows that could have had much more much higher dramatic oh, yes states. I agree with that yeah but then when kind of later there's a key moment when um, he fails one of the psyche vows and he kind of like gives up and tries a different route instead of doing something like, I don't know, he had this little pill in his pocket that he could have popped to lower his heart rate yeah, and like yeah. kind of fake the system. And it's then continue on. kind of like the, the
0: Soma and Brave New World. Yeah. Like the yeah. Heavy pills for, for deep space travel.
1: Right. Right. So I thought that, um, rather than confronting and, and kind of like having to, uh, challenge his inner demons to fight his rising, uh, heart rate and that kind of thing in the moment he was just like, well, I guess I'll just try a different way. And so what I thought could have been a really uh, fantastic dramatic device in the third act are just pretty much completely dropped in terms of moving the plot forward. It, it, you know, it fills in the role of like telling us what he's thinking, but, um, but plus the voiceover, it's a lot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, there were, there were some weird things. I mean, we got this set up of Brad Pitt uh, in the very beginning of the film. He's on the space antenna, right? Yeah. He has that brush with death. And then he. we later find out that even in the most dire of circumstances, his heart rate has never been above 80. Mm-hmm. And then, like 20 oh, minutes 60. later, a oh, 60, that is, yeah. that is yeah. a it healthy was, dude. It, yeah, it, right. it was 80. Oh, okay. it was, it was not First 60. of all, okay. I was like, impossible. <laughs> That's not even remotely <laughs> true. Like, this guy never gets on a treadmill. Uh, but, like, 20 minutes later, his heart rate's like above 80 because he's stressed out by some situation. I was just like, well, now. I, I don't know. Like, what was the point of that earlier on? doesn't really but make I, sense. So
1: I, I think there are some interesting things there. Can I, can I kind of give my general it. thought about this movie? Sure. Yeah. I have a lot of affection for this movie Um, for, for several reasons. I, my general hypothesis with this film is that if in the first 20 or th- maybe 30 minutes, um, if you let yourself, um, kind of give yourself to the tone of the film and if you're intrigued enough by the central conceit which I don't think we've mentioned yet which is uh his father who is this legendary astronaut is also suspected of causing um these uh Roy the son thinks that his father is dead but Spacecom thinks that he might be alive and might be uh causing these kind of uh radio waves that are coming back and damaging the earth yeah
0: basically creating it's really like large electrical. electromagnetic yeah, yeah. impulses that right so,
1: Roy is in this position where he's he's having to confront the fact that his father, who abandoned him when he was young, might still be out there and have refused to reach out to him, right, and that he might might not be this hero that he's built him up to be in his head, but that he might be um, something that's literally causing deaths every day and so I think that was really interesting to me at the beginning of the film. I think that the pacing and just what's going on visually and with the score and with the sound design was enough for me that I was willing to really get into the rhythm of the film in the first act. Plus I think there's a lot of really fantastic um, production design. Uh, And especially in that first act, when we see he takes this commercial flight to the moon and you see like there's an Applebee's at the moon and there's an airport that looks just like a normal airport, but it's in space. And there's a road sign. Don't
2: forget there's a Hudson news. There's a Hudson. News. That's (laughs)
1: right. And and there's like a road sign that looks just like what you'd see on the side of a freeway, but it says like random lunar path, you know, something like that. And so there's enough little touches like that, that at the beginning made me really kind of fall for the tone and and the visuals that are coming at it. But I kind of want to frame my thoughts in terms of, um, there's two critics that had very different approaches to this film. One of them is, uh, His name is Josh Larson. He's a Chicago-based critic, and he said it was it felt like the most visually arresting session of talk therapy you've ever experienced. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and and he thought that another phrase he used was um, the you know metaphor of his father abandoning him going into space uh, was made the film feel thuddingly literal. Mm. Um, And so he's kind of in that camp that the um, narration is is kind of causing all these problems, which I I agree. I think the film would be much better without the narration. However. Um, there's another guy that I like a lot, um, David Ehrlich from IndieWire. Uh, and, and his argument is that uh, Ad Astra is one of the most ruminative, withdrawn, and curiously optimistic space odysseys this side of Solaris. It's also one of the best.
0: Hold on. Ruminative, withdrawn, and curious? What was, uh, the, was the third curiously adjective? Curiously optimistic. Curiously optimistic, okay. Those were the three adjectives that Okay, he wow.
1: So... I find myself really intrigued by both of these um, kind of lines of thinking because yeah. I think that the the voiceover to me does ruin a, a it doesn't ruin a lot of moments, but it um, I, I just wanted it to kind of go away. <laughs> totally, um, it's like Brad Pitt, like, shut no sh- up! Sh- like, let me watch this. Mostly because I think there's enough going on with his performance, with the way he's like his eyes are moving, yeah, and yeah, and, totally. um, and with the way that he kind of starts to unfold throughout the film. Um, that I just wanted to see that rather than have him explain himself. Yes, absolutely. 100%. I agree. He was kind of, it felt more like he was trying to be Terrence Malick esque, but not, yeah, the whisper, not being whispering. a <laughs> poet. Um, but at the same time, I think there's enough um, visual things and enough really big questions and a lot of really interesting allusions. And there's there's a lot kind of going on here, a lot of interpretations, a lot of ways to think about this film that. I, I have a lot of affection for it.
0: Okay. That's all right. I'm glad we have someone who's who's fairly pro at Astra on this podcast <laughs> because my overall opinion of this movie, like like you, Josh, I really wanted to enjoy it. I love space movies. The Martian is certainly top five for me, like all all movies, period. I love that movie so much. Uh, really enjoyed Interstellar. I love Apollo 13, which obviously is, is in a totally different genre, but you know, still space and uh, space catastrophe. Really good stuff, and I saw this trailer, and I was like, "Brad Pitt space movie, this is going to be awesome." Tommy Lee Jones is going to be great, and I go to the theater, and there are certainly great moments. I don't want to, I don't want to totally trash this movie. I mean, even the cinematography from the space antenna in the opening scenes, really arresting stuff. I like it a lot, and I like the creative juice behind the commercial flight to the moon, like you were talking about, Chandler. But I think. I guess I have a couple of criticisms. We've already talked about the voiceover ad nausea. One thing that I would say is that I too found myself wanting the voiceover to stop just so I could focus on Brad Pitt's acting performance. But I tend to think that the voiceover, even though even though there was a lot there in his acting, I tend to think the voiceover hurt him because A, it's distracting for the viewer, and B, he can get away with not conveying everything through what he's doing. If he has this voiceover that's sort of narrating things for you, yeah, sure. And so I really didn't like that, and I was just longing for like me to see more Brad Pitt. and this is, this is probably going to sound like a weird comment, but you mentioned his eyes, like what he's doing with his eyes. I found myself like so like captivated by Brad Pitt's eyes in this. <laughs> and it, that sounds weird. But what I mean by that is like he's just slowly watch out. <laughs> yeah, he's just showing <laughs> us he's showing us so much with his eyes, like just simple things like that. And I think part of it's Josh you, I know you said you saw it on IMAX as well. So I was in I was in IMAX, I was fairly close to the front of the theater, like, you know, Brad Pitt's face is like right. you know, five five of my heights, you know. Um, but there were also a lot of close up shots there are in this of close movie. Ups, yeah. And so I think that, you know, it, it gave Brad Pitt a really big opportunity to show a lot with his face. Tommy Lee Jones, too, when he he appeared later in the movie. Um but but I was just wishing that the voiceover was not that. Yeah. This the second big complaint I have is the, the realism is just not there, and I mentioned The Martian is one of my favorites, and that's because the realism, yes, we don't send humans to Mars right now, but Andy Ware, in writing the novel The Martian, was meticulous in all of his research to make sure that it was as realistic as it could be in a plausible future scenario. And in this case, we start off with the near future. It's pretty clear that on Earth, on Earth some things have have developed you know he has uh you know a fairly advanced like touch screen in his bedroom and stuff but it's nothing earth shattering so this is clearly something that they're trying to say is like 50 years in the future and uh even just starting out with that space antenna uh in the very beginning that's not realistic like just the laws of physics make the space antenna as we saw it there impossible the the trip to the moon the the, the moon terminal was cool from a like creative visual effect standpoint but totally unrealistic that there's going to be a, you know, an airlocked environment that big to have people and children traveling commercially to the moon. Um, and, you know, at every point along, like uh, even the the rescue mission, uh, we, we need to talk about the space baboons. <laughs> I, I really want to talk about the space baboons. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the space baboons. I was just like, what is this now an episode of Star Trek that we're watching? Mm-hmm. Or are we watching mm-hmm. the near future with an astronaut from the Space Force who's going to find his father who is uh, you know a, a, another uh, luminary in the Space Force. So um, the realism really sort of uh, hurt the case there as well. Um, and overall, I just think, uh, Josh, I think you said on the nose. Lara, I know we had a, a conversation in which you used the same verbiage, and I would say I, I, I echo that sentiment. I thought the voiceover really contributed to, like, let us not let you come to the conclusion through what we're showing you, but let us just tell you what you need to think about this. Yeah, right. And it was just it was just too much, especially the last two minutes of dialogue in the film. Mm-hmm. Um just just way too much. I wish I could play the clip here, but obviously it's still in theaters, so we can't. But um, you know, Brad Pitt's commentary as he leaves his father behind in outer space at the very end is just too much. Like you could have just ended the movie there mm-hmm. and had Brad Pitt soaring back towards Earth in silence. And we could have reached that conclusion as viewers. You don't need yeah. to tell us what to think. Yeah. and I mean, okay,
1: that's a believer the um, narration point. But sure, I think yeah. that one of the things that it detracts the most from the film is that it, um, it does make the metaphors so much more on the surface, which means it, it saps them of their power. Yeah. Um, like the one that stuck out the most to me was when he's in that Martian underground lake and he's like pulling himself along this rope. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite visual moments of the film where we've got this beautiful kind of amber light that's filtering through this water. And he's in this space suit as he's kind of pulling himself forward. And it's, it's this moment that's um, kind of echoes the whole rest of the movie where he's going through this void deep into space. um, And there we have Brad Pitt telling us how <laughs> yeah, he's exactly. traveling through the void. <laughs> of let me space. explain yeah. this visual yeah. metaphor to you. you. Just give me thirty seconds of watching Brad Pitt pull himself through yeah. this beautiful like yeah. space water.
0: Like. I feel like it was longer than thirty seconds though. As I was watching that scene, I was like, "This is going on." <laughs> and, like, how long is this rope?
2: I'm in the lake yeah. and it's wet. I don't know if I'll I'm make like, it in time.
0: Can't see anything.
2: <laughs> I think I th- okay. So uh, let me let me make a couple points here. Zach, to your point about the realism, you know, for me, when I sit down for, with a sci-fi movie, I sort of throw realism out the door. So, like, we don't go to Neptune now, so I'm not bothered by the fact that the nuclear explosion at the end, you know, uh, propulsed him back to, you know, catapulted him back to to Earth.
0: Like that. Oh yeah, that we forgot to mention that me. this movie even had a nuclear explosion in it. That's a good point.
2: It definitely <laughs> does. But you know, for me, like the stuff that was on the nose, particularly was like, "Let me go, son." Let me go. <laughs> it was like, we get it. It's like, we we get, like, you could have had that whole moment just, you know, like, without dialogue, and you would have gotten it. You know, for me, sometimes the voiceover worked, and sometimes it didn't. I actually thought the ending voiceover was fine. Like, I don't mind at that point, but I think probably because it had been built up throughout the entire movie, you're like, all right, this is just one more thing that I wish I could get rid of. You could have had that moment with him and Liv Tyler. Uh, apologies to Liv Tyler, by the way. She had nothing to do in this movie. Yeah, and, You know, <laughs> But, you
1: know, they. Yeah, could have what that was that? Without, I mean, I thought we were going to close that
0: loop at some point and we just never did.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's probably like James Gray saw her in Lord of the Rings in the flashback <laughs> scenes and it was like, yes, we need that. <laughs> That's what I
0: need in this. The flashbacks kind of like black and white. Yeah.
1: But then I don't the want her to say anything. So. Yeah.
2: She, she's not a bad actress. Like she could have done more. Oh, yeah. In this, for sure. But they didn't give her anything to do. I think is now a good time to talk about the Brad Pitt's performance versus, uh, you know, other stuff that he's done. Yeah. Okay, so. And then we need to talk about me, the space baboons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we keep, we're, gonna, we're not going to forget about the space <laughs> baboons. Uh, we're just teasing everybody. Exactly. There were space baboons. <laughs> uh, I promise. So, you know, for me, like, I've never been, I, I like Brad Pitt. I, I think he's very charismatic. But for me, he's never been someone who is like the most tremendous actor. He sort of plays himself a lot. Like even, even some of his most famous movies like oceans 11 or fight club. It's just like a different version of Brad Pitt. Yeah, Get this really attractive looking guy. He plays that. I thought he did stuff here and compared to his role in once upon a time in Hollywood, which he, was earlier this year like he he showed a bunch of range that I'd never seen him do before so I think that was the most impressive thing about this performance the whole thing about him acting with his eyes was so true because and not just his eyes but like the bags under his eyes like they were moving they were like emoting which I think is a very underrated skill for a film actor you know it's clear he's never going to be like a theater actor because that would not play well in a big space right. but on film when you have all these close-ups especially IMAX you know <laughs> exactly so i think that really worked well i i've never been a huge brad pitt fan in terms of like his
1: acting but i thought he did really well in this film i would totally agree with you and i think that brad pitt was a good casting choice in this case um and i'm going to compare it a little bit to tree of life which is another movie that actually uh, i think um i watched just a day or two after at astra for i saw that one for the third time
0: I've never seen it. So But
1: so he plays uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that you, he plays himself because he oftentimes will play a more macho kind of like guy with a bit of swagger. Like in oceans, for yeah, example. In an ocean. And so um, in Tree Life as in here, he's playing that kind like a little bit of that kind of a, a man who's kind of a man's man and in this one, you know, he's he's got some significant amount of prowess. He's a a good astronaut. Um, and what this film is really interested in doing is kind of peeling back that kind of a man and opening up the different layers so that at the beginning you get this more kind of stoic, um,
0: professional, yeah, professional, professional.
1: right. Not the guy who's going to tell you his feelings, but throughout the course of the movie, um, you see even in the, um, the kind of talk therapy sessions, um, at the beginning, he's, he's very kind of cut and dry. And he says like, I will, Keep the things in focus that are important. I will not compromise, and whatever
0: I will and, rely on no one. Right, I will depend only on myself.
1: Right, and by the end, um, you you get this kind of opened up more, um, a man who's more willing to rely on others and and be part of yeah. Uh, well, and part of the, of the complaint is that he says that explicitly. Yeah, and like, he says he that like, he says that explicitly. But yeah, what what, what I not, think here is that in his eyes, what he's doing is at the beginning they're very cold and mm-hmm. kind of centered and mm-hmm. focused. In that last shot that you see of him um, when he's getting out of the space capsule, his eyes are so like, like watery and tired and so relieved to see another human face that um, the voiceover, of course, makes it very like literal in that moment, but what he's doing there is really a, a big journey, and you can track that through that kind of eye expression. Yeah,
3: I honestly wish... Okay, yes, the narration. I, but I, I would love to see the film stripped of the narration and then compare that that performance to his performance in Tree of Life because I think that they would be, Like uh, I adore his uh, his performance in Tree of Life and I think it's one of the best performances I've ever seen Brad Pitt do. Um,
1: it sounds like I need to see Tree of Life.
0: Yeah, because oh, yeah, he plays the man's man, but very like emotionally.
3: Yeah, but it's like, and, and there's so, so little dialogue in Tree yeah. of Life that I think that, that Ad Astra could have had a similar, or that his performance in Ad Astra could have had a similar effect if, if it was a quieter film.
0: Yeah. I can't wait for a sound engineer to remove, <laughs> remove all the voiceover <laughs> and put it on YouTube. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's been so maligned. I feel like someone's going to do that at some point. Yeah. Can I just say, though, that when I was watching the movie, you know, as much as I did like his performance, I was just thinking that I would have liked this movie more if it hadn't been Brad Pitt. Mm. One of the things that I think worked really well with him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was that he was playing a character that sort of sort of matched up or, or sort of contrasted with his real life. And I think that was a really interesting choice for him, you know, playing a sidekick, playing someone who, uh, you know, has had no real personal relationships, hasn't really been in the spotlight. And that's totally different than Brad Pitt as an actor in real life. He's very much been in the spotlight his whole career. I was just thinking like the number of actors that I would have rather seen in Ad Astra who I think would have been able to do more without having the baggage of being Brad Pitt, so I was thinking even like Leonardo DiCaprio or or Bradley Cooper or I don't know I was just thinking of all these actors who would have I think done this in in a better way. I don't know why I feel like that but I feel like there's a lot that I just had going with me Ryan Gosling. About, about Brad Pitt, <laughs> I was thinking yeah. about that too. Yeah.
3: <laughs> no, he already Except
2: saw that he him was the another first space man. Movie. I know, I know that's what I mean. <laughs> I just felt like, and and I was thinking, like maybe even Ben Affleck, I, I don't think Matt Damon could do it, um, even though he, he's had his fair share of space movies at this point. Um, but I don't know. There was just something about his... I liked it, but I, I was kind of wishing for someone else in this role. And I think part of the reason they cast him was because they knew that he could help sell the movie. And even that didn't yeah. entirely land, because it didn't make a ton of money because of Brad Pitt. I think we're past the movie star opening a movie thing anyway.
0: Yeah, I th- I think those are all... Good points. I'm I'm curious about I mean, your suggestions for alternative casting have gotten me thinking about who would have done a better job. I don't know if Bradley Cooper could have. Um I and I think that Matt Damon could do a better job than Ben Affleck, but then you run into the problem of, oh, we've already seen him in the Martian and we've already seen him in Interstellar, and at a certain point like audiences get, I think, saturated and and like cognitively those boundaries sort of cross in your mind. Can we talk about the space baboons? Yeah, space baboons. All <laughs> right, let's see. So this movie, we'd be remiss if we did not mention, this movie has both space pirates and space baboons. Yes. So the mm-hmm. space pirates first appear, well, their only appearance is um, outside of the lunar moon base mm-hmm. when they're transiting to the dark side of the moon. <laughs> and that's how it's referenced. There's no navigational directions given to, um, to uh, Roy McBride other than... The launching pad is on the dark side. And so he heads off in his lunar rover. And they get about 10 minutes outside of this sprawling lunar airport when they get attacked by no less than three different lunar vehicles manned by pirates. And honestly,
3: I think that was one of the most epic moments of the. I That's mean, it's a I just, really it,
0: cool sequence.
3: It was It was like something from Fury Road.
1: Like, yeah, yeah, it was it kind f- of Fury like Road-ish. It
3: felt because like, like there was this, this rover chase. Yeah. Basically, look, it was it
2: was definitely impressive in its in its scope. But, you know, one of the criticisms about this and then also the space baboons, which (laughs) we promise we're getting to, we promise. (laughs) We just have to uh, queue it up
0: with the space pirates.
2: Exactly. Is that they're sort of like weirdly tangential right. problems he runs into. So yeah, it's like totally. James Gray was writing the script and he was like, well, he's got to have a conflict here because he can't just go from one one place to another. So maybe they're space pirates. Like, it doesn't matter that they appear to be coming from the surface of the moon itself. <laughs> and the fact that- <laughs> From like, the maybe same maybe direction they that
0: they're coming from the airport. Yeah,
2: it's like- it's like there's so many problems with the like logic behind the scene. Like, first of all, they're spending money building a Hudson News, but they're not spending money like creating a safe <laughs> pathway to this other place. And then the other problem is like they knew the space pirates were out there. They sent two vehicles and had what looked like no weapons. They had like these like laser guns, but that was it. The space pirates came armed.
0: I felt bad they for that lieutenant go. who just went down quickly. Oh yeah. yeah.
2: So like so like logic wise, that and also the space weapon and stuff was just sort of like. We need a problem for him to encounter to continue, you know, having him face adversity before he can ultimately meet his dad, which you kind of knew was coming in yeah. the third act. Like it, it, that that to me was pretty predictable, which is another issue I had with the film is like we knew where it was going. Just the same way I had a problem in a, in a smaller way with The Martian, because you knew Like they weren't going to spend this whole movie trying to rescue Matt Damon's character to have him die at the end. Right. Like I read the book and I was like, there's no way he dies. He's going to make it back. Mm -hmm. When I saw the movie, I felt the same thing. So like, you know, that that predictability was another problem. But yeah, I think visually the sequences were amazing. Yeah, I think the the only thing that redeems
0: that that uh, space pirate scene is the ending moment where they careen off the edge of the crater in the low gravity environment of the moon and they're in that flat spin on the Rover. I mean, it's a, that's a pretty arresting scene in and of itself. It's very cool. And then we get to the space baboons. (laughs) So he, he launches off of the moon. They're en route to Mars, which in Mars is a small outpost that's, you know, has, has only a few people members of the space force, et cetera. And he's going to go from Mars to Neptune. And on the way they get this distress call, go to rescue the ship. He and the captain of the vessel he's traveling on, answer the distress call, go on the ship, and then we get to the baboons. And I know Chandler has a hot take on baboons here that I really want to hear, so <laughs> all I mean, right, I'm so, excited.
1: <clears throat> so, I mean, uh, first of all...
0: Um, well, well actually, first of all, the space baboons, we just need to set it up if, if, if our listeners haven't seen it. Yeah, They're not just baboons, but they're man-eating space baboons.
1: Yeah, so I think the implication is that um, the ship went down because the... Um, the kind of surge electromagnetic pulse that's coming from Neptune has intercepted and knocked out this ship along the way, and um, it something happened inside and let out these uh, kind of test animals that then rebelled and killed their uh, the people on the
0: ship. Um, and, and so these are like man-sized baboons with yeah, razor sharp teeth
1: yeah um, so McBride and the captain of the ship go on board and and the captain I thought had a nice little kind of very warm performance that um, you know, obviously sets up the kind of tragedy which befalls them because they go
0: in and then the captain um, gets attacked and dies. My only complaint is I wish that Matthew McConaughey was cast in the role of that captain, Um, like the the good old Southern boy, like welcome aboard. (laughs) That would have been funny. Um, Short lived though.
1: But I mean, so I think that this sequence is first of all set up as it's definitely a suspense sequence, and I think that yeah. just from a kind of sequence standpoint, I think it works. I think it's a suspenseful sequence. Um, but what I think becomes really interesting is when you think about that sequence in terms of the whole film, because you do, I think, get to this point where you're like, well, why did that sequence exist? Because it, in the long run, um, has a couple of small little later you know ways it plays into uh the events down the road but i think in the biggest way tommy lee jones at the very end um the way that that sequence is set up where roy enters that ship is built i think similarly to when they enter the ship with the space baboons and when you get inside you see this old man who's killed off everyone else in the spaceship and he's got this really hairy face. Mm. And the casting here, I think, is important because so he's he got kind of a baboon. gaunt face. And, I think and he he's, looks like he a He looks yeah. kind of like a baboon here. I've always True.
3: thought that Tommy Lee Jones looks like a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a great casting choice because of
1: this. <laughs> and so I think that the space baboon scene now like finds some kind of thematic resonance with this end where um, uh, the father figure is reduced to this kind of animalistic state because of his isolation or again he's killed off everyone um and uh and is 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 you know if if man is a social animal well he's he's lost he's lost that
0: so yeah that's 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 a good perspective i hadn't thought about that but i guess i would just my rejoinder would be why like what does the space baboon sequence add to our understanding of the end
1: well i think because the end roy comes back and he has the conclusion that he needs to go back to earth and i think this is a line that Lara might have something to say in about in a minute that he says something to the effect of earth's all we got. Yeah. So I'm going to go back there. Right. Um, and one of the things I think is really interesting about this film is that it, it uh, embraces kind of wholeheartedly the fact that our kind of cosmology, how we think about the cosmos affects how we think about ourselves and, and just, it affects our worldview in, in profound ways that, used to be really important to like the medievals and yeah, now I, I don't think people think about that very much but this movie definitely does. So um, uh, Cliff McBride's cosmology is always kind of outward focused. He wants to be going outward and Roy um, realizes that he needs to go inward and then return back to Earth and go back into community. So I think that Baboons, because uh, it kind of, com- you know, it shows Clifford in this more animalistic state, is kind of sp- saying that by going out here and by pursuing the ends of uh, our known understanding of the universe, he's he's become less human.
3: So it works as a mirror. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's a that earlier part with the baboon mirrors the the later scene,
0: and so it, so it illuminates more about about the later scene because yeah, it, it illuminates
1: more about the end because yeah. we're like
0: we've seen this before
1: because we've seen yeah. the end result of of abandoning humanity. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think
2: this is a good, this might be a good time to to talk about sort of the overall outlook of. Of sort of humanity and and whether this has I, I've read some things that this is, takes a very humanistic approach where you know because his ultimate conclusion is I've got to go back to Earth and and be with the people who I care about and and go back and reunite with my wife that he's sort of abandoning this idea that there's any other divine power or and, and Tommy Lee Jones's character is very much of the mindset like we have to keep searching there's got to be something out there and ultimately it's it's portrayed as the fact that. Tommy Lee Jones' character, you know, just does not, uh, you know, he, he, he's is, it's like, yeah, he's delusional, but, 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 but it's, me, it's more like, than,
0: it's more than just delusional though. I think the, the, the fatal flaw for Tommy Lee Jones' character is that he doesn't love. He, he pretty clearly doesn't have a capacity for love, or at least he doesn't choose to love. And so for me, the most powerful piece of dialogue in the film was when Roy gets to the, gets to Tommy Lee Jones' Clifford's ship. And he's on the ground floor, and Clifford finds him. And Clifford's up, you know, two stories above from whatever they're, or one story above, and they're talking to each other. So Clifford's looking down from his vantage point up above, and Roy's looking up, and Cliff says, "I never cared about you or your mother. All I cared about was this." And we see this small solitary tear coming from Brad Pitt's right eye, and he says, "I know." It's like it's it's just a, it's just a devastatingly powerful indictment on Cliff McBride's character and the emptiness of what he's pursued. Because you know we we understand as human beings that, like you said, Chandler, we're social animals, and that's what matters. And Cliff has totally negated all of that for himself, and he's just lost the capacity to love.
2: Well, I think the thing that I I wanted to say about this is I I feel like the idea that this movie is like a humanist you know, apologist is is not correct because of that. It's like Tommy Lee Jones' character is in search of other life. Like, I think just because Brad Pitt realizes I've got to go back and be with People I care about doesn't mean that he he couldn't believe in something higher than that It just yeah. means that it just means that there's no extraterrestrial life out there mm-hmm. I mean like to me like people are conflating the, the ideas of like because Tommy Lee Jones character is now delusional And he has this in- inability to show love and the fact that he so strongly believes that there you know There's a- other life out there that because you know He is so clearly in the wrong in that sense that all all of a sudden, you know, like humanism is the only way to view, you know, how we should approach life. Like, I feel like that's that's a little bit of a stretch. Like, they don't they don't ever explicitly say like you can't believe in anything else because Tommy Lee Jones, yeah, you know, yeah. f- decided that you know he must keep
0: searching even though there's nothing there. And we know that if they were trying to say that, we'd hear a Brad Pitt voiceover <laughs> saying that. <this. laughs> definitely would.
3: Well, the other interesting thing is the role of. Uh, faith or what looks like some sort of Christian faith yeah in the film because um at the beginning we we have that that um that video message of uh from uh Clifford McBride and he's talking about how he feels like he's he's they're they're approaching Neptune and he feels closer to God than he ever has before. Oh yeah, or, I forgot about that. Um and then we have Later on, there's um, a bunch of astronauts who are praying over a, a, a recently well. Even before that, it's on.
0: after the space but. But when they when they take off <laughs> oh, from that, Mars though, okay. when they take off from Mars, one of the crew members prays to Saint Christopher and asks, yeah. mm-hmm. asks Saint mm-hmm. Christopher for safe travel. Yeah. So yeah, you have was this, the captain. So yeah. you have these. Oh, it was the captain. Okay. You yeah. have
3: um this connection between the the, the space travelers, yeah. and those who are going outside of Earth, and Christian faith,
0: yeah, and then the, like kind. like you mentioned, the burial rites for the man who's right. killed by the space baboons,
3: and so it does it, it at least to me watching the film, it definitely seemed like he, I mean, yes, yes, Clifford is not he's not searching for God, yeah, but there's a connection between him and this desire to be close to God, and so as he is proved wrong over the course of the film, it, it the it seems like there's also this. um, it it condemns, or ultimately it it gives up on that, that faith or, or, you know, the people who believe that there is something outside of earth, um, whether that is extra, extra, extraterrestrial life or like a higher being, God, Right. Um, and then ultimately, and then there's that line, at least we know we're all we've got. Mm -hmm. And it's, it seemed to me like that was also referencing like a divine power.
1: Like we don't, we're all we've got, we don't have God, you mean?
3: Yeah, like yeah, yeah, j yeah. and, and that was just set up because of all of those um ties between the astronauts and faith.
1: I will say yeah,
2: I I I totally see that. I, I just think that it's it's one of those things where it's like, to me that connection wasn't as clear as like for all the for all the stuff we've been talking about, things being on the nose, I did not read into it. I I totally picked up on those moments, but but for me, Brad Pitt coming back to Earth and saying like I'm going to choose to live and to love, like to me, I guess maybe I'm coming from a personal place, but to me, you can't live and love without having a belief in something higher. Now that could just be what I'm personally bringing to it, but like I don't feel like you can reach that conclusion by just saying humanity is the only thing out there and the only thing that matters.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I I'm not sure if I agree with the second part of your statement Josh that you that you can't love without believing in a higher power. I mean, I think that I would tweak it to say that you can't love without at least unconsciously or unknowingly participating in the love of a higher power. And that's that's in accordance with the theology I believe. So if, you know, if God is the source of all existence, then God and God is the source of love, then anybody who loves is at least unknowingly participating in God's love by loving themselves, not not loving themselves, but showing love from themselves to another person. But I also do agree with you that I didn't really take the end of the movie to be saying there's no God. I took the end of the movie to be saying that Brad Pitt was not going to be making the choices that his father made and that he needed to be loving other people. And I thought that, I mean, this might be reading a little bit or assuming too much, but I think that the very explicit mentions of faith by the astronauts on board the ship. First, the captain who did the St. Christopher invocation. And mm-hmm. then second, the crew member who did the burial office um, was very much like not a repudiation of faith, but showing like this, this faith is compatible with these scientific explorers who are astronauts themselves. Mm-hmm. And to me, the notion that somebody could travel through the cosmos in the way that Roy McBride does and see these beautiful sweeping shots that we are exposed to in the film, you know, just sitting outside of Neptune and looking at Neptune's rings, for example, like to me, the idea that they could, that person could come back and say, there's no higher power is a little bit unrealistic.
1: One, one other thing I have about um, those kind of prayer moments, and this is more generally tied into um, this film's interest in antiquity and in just lots of other there's there's echoes of lots of movies Mm -hmm. like 2001 space odyssey and apocalypse now in particular but um the odyssey um you know the the old epic um yeah poem the original odyssey yeah the original odyssey um uh if this is a, a guy going after in search of his father You know, perhaps there's like a Telemachus figure that we have here. Um, But also, something that I was thinking of walking out of the theater is that, you know, it's called Ad Astra. Okay. We're kind of got some classical stuff already. These people praying, is this almost like them invoking the gods of antiquity? Hmm. You know, is this kind of James Gray trying to transpose that uh, kind of formal quality of an epic poem like the Odyssey into? a contemporary setting where rather than, you know, invoking, I mean, we have the planets laid out, sure. you know, in the movie, but rather than invoking Neptune, say Jupiter, Uranus, yeah. um, why not, uh, you know, invoke the kind of Christian God, which at least culturally is, yeah, more, it, make, makes more context, yeah right.
0: it makes more sense in this context. Yeah. It makes
1: more sense in this context. And then also something that I have no clue what the answer to this is, or even if it's a question worth asking, but is, is Neptune significant? You know, it's like yeah, Poseidon. Sure. Does that, you know, yeah, is,
0: God of the sea is, I don't know. Yeah, but, I don't know either. Your your first point has made me reconsider my position though. That's really interesting. That maybe that's that's put in as a uh, as a hearkening back to class the classical Odyssey.
3: Well, I do know that James Gray has identified Roy McBride as a telemachus figure. Okay. So that at least is
0: lends credence. confirmed yeah.
3: by the director.
0: So in that sense, uh, you know, maybe the, the moderns then look at this as, you know, this is sort of like a quaint a quaint invocation by these guys to St. Christopher or. I yeah. Don't know, but I just,
3: I just think that especially with that, that moment where, where Clifford is talking about how he feels closer to God and like he feels his presence. It's, yeah. it's an overwhelming presence. That, that's more than just like some invoc some prayers True. along the way. That just seemed like a very explicit like moment where they tied him to right. belief in God.
0: And uh, not a great figure to tie to the belief in no. God. <laughs> okay, well, we are at 47 minutes here. I want to wrap up soon, but I want to do a couple of other things that, that you guys had suggested. So first, Lara, you had suggested uh, each of us selecting sort of a best shot or best piece of cinematography in the film because there is some stunning stuff here. And having seen it in IMAX and and uh, and having seen that stuff on a gigantic screen, it was it was very striking. So I want to do that. And then I also thought that maybe we could Rank our our top three space movies, and we'll see if this cracks the top three for anyone anyone sitting here. So let's start with the cinematography question. And Laura, since this was your idea, I'll pitch it to you. So, what was your favorite cinematography uh, shot in the film?
3: Okay, so hands down, I it was the image of Roy and his father wrestling beneath Neptune. Mm. That was I, I was just like that made I I can't get that shot out of my mind. It yeah. is, and and again, I would like. I, it seems like that shot has more, more metaphorical significance as like, I'm just wondering if Neptune, like, I I also don't know very much about like the classical roots of like their connections with Neptune. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: the God of the sea, but that's as far as, right. as far as my knowledge goes. But it so. was just,
3: yeah, that one, that took the whole, that was, yeah, beyond any other shot in the film. That was it.
0: Okay. Nice. Let Jabba. me go, Roy. Let me so, go. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, well, without the without the, the sound, as we all
1: know. I, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here. Um, so I I have been digging, doing a bit of uh, digging and listening. I heard some other podcasts, and I I'm going to have to go with the moon sequences, uh, especially some of those close ups on the visors where yeah. you see the gold with the kind of mm-hmm. black sky and the reflection because they they the cinematography there is done in a really fascinating way. Um. Uh, the cinematographer Hoytma, von van Hoytema, um, he did Interstellar. Actually, he's also okay. another big space movie. So he knows how to do space. He doesn't how to do space. But what they did is, is um, they filmed it in a desert, uh, and they took an old 3D rig. So in a 3D rig, uh, it splits the image with a mirror uh, into two cameras, and so they had they shot most of the movie on 35 millimeter, um, but they they split the image for those scenes so that um, they had a 35 millimeter print, and then they also had a digital infrared sensor on the other end, so they could impose those because digital infrared makes the sky turn black. So they were able to oh, use the, dig- the the film print yeah. with the digital kind of composite on top, so that in camera they could get a moon. Oh, that's look, cool. That's really cool. Um, without having to. Uh, do individual kind of key framing, compo- which I'm sure they did, but it just made the, the post-production um, a little bit easier and be able to achieve that look more in camera. So, that, that so the for whole sequence
0: is, when they're outdoors on the moon.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, especially you know, some of those shots with the reflections because in particular, the reflections would be really hard to, to yeah. pull off without doing it that way. So, it's super anyway, cool.
0: Okay, it's really cool. nice. Josh, <laughs> what about you?
2: Okay, so Lara took took the one that I was gonna say. So I will I will give another one here, and this is a very small moment, but it's a, towards the beginning of the film, when um, you first see that that Brad Pitt was married and that he had a wife. So you see the shot of Liv Tyler walking down a hallway, so you can see who it is. But then you see the shot of Brad Pitt standing in the kitchen and um, Liv Tyler's character is walking in a hallway behind him, and she's she's out of focus. Brad Pitt's character's in focus. And typically, in, in shots like that, you would sort of rack focus so that you could see her character in focus. She clearly looks over to him, drops her keys, and then keeps going on. But what I thought was really great about that that shot even though it's small is that she's she's never comes into focus and so without any dialogue without I don't even think there's voiceover in that particular moment
3: no there but is. you see oh, <laughs> no okay. I can remember the, the voiceover in that spot because I also remember.
1: he actually says something like I will focus on what's important
3: yeah <laughs> uh, but okay, it was so, a good shot yeah
1: so
2: it will, regardless, the fact that they don't focus on her is just a nice visual moment where if you were watching the film without sound, which it sounds like we all would like to do, maybe yeah. just have the score <laughs> playing, that <laughs> you you get this idea that that she's totally removed from, from his mind. Yeah. And even though she's there physically, it's not something that he, he can latch on to or he chooses not to latch on to.
0: I'm but glad I, you brought that up because I feel like that was early enough in the movie where I was still... I, I am probably unique in that I do this, but I sort of take a little bit of time to like adjust to what's going on in the movie. And so I'm not keyed into the artistic components of some of those shots. But as you mentioned it, Josh, I was thinking back and I was like, yeah, that that's true. That's that's a good call out.
1: I, um, I did like that
0: moment. Yeah, it was good. Um, mine, so I just, I want to give an honorable mention to the most ridiculous scene. And that is uh, akin to the Martian, that scene in the end where he, he cuts the hole in his suit and like is, is flying around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You're you talking know, about a space orbit. shield. Yeah, the space exactly. Shield? The space shield. Yeah, <laughs> so using the sheet metal to uh, fly through Neptune's rings. I thought that was, uh, oh, yeah. that was pretty spectacular. <laughs> awesome. um, Love that for the realism. Um, my favorite shot was, I, I had a couple that I liked. One was right after the wrestling uh, underneath Neptune's rings. Once he does let him go, let me, let me go, Roy. Uh, once he does let him go, Tommy Lee Jones just sort of floats off. and and that is is a devastating moment just like
3: watching him just become smaller and smaller and not being able to do to do anything about it
0: and the i think the poetic justice of that like here's a man who sought such greatness by going to the edges of the known universe and severed himself from everybody that he knew on earth and then end up killing killing all his crew members and then like this is what this is what becomes of him like he literally shrinks into nothingness as we watch I thought that was really good. The other, the other shot I really liked was when they were on the moon, uh, Chandler. So it wasn't a visor shot, but they were on the moon transiting and someone pointed out the earth. And so we like panned away and we saw the big black sky above the moon and then the giant blueberry just suspended in, in the sky there. And I think the, maybe it wasn't super profound, but I think just the, the, the takeaway being like, here we are viewing all of human civilization right there. Mm. Uh, and it looks so small And yet so beautiful and so captivating, this like blue marble against a pitch black background. Um, So I really like those scenes. Okay, so with that, let's do kind of top three space movies and see if this cracks the top three. So, Josh, let's start with you this time.
2: All right. So I, I put a lot of thought into this and I have not seen probably every space movie that there is. But when I pitched this to Zach as something to talk about on the on the podcast. I said, maybe we shouldn't do like fantasy movies. So uh, Star Trek, like no Star, Star Wars, Wars or yeah. Star Trek. Yeah. Um, Starship I might Troopers. Cheat a little bit with <laughs> Starship Troopers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, number one in everybody's book. <laughs> I think that uh, number three for me is First Man. And so. Chandler, when you were talking about the cinematography on the moon, I I just kept thinking back to seeing First Man and how much I loved that cinematography on the moon. Now, First Man is uh, supposed to be a realistic portrayal of, you know, artistic, but realistic portrayal of, of the first men on the moon. And I just think that that movie was so well done in terms of how they presented Neil Armstrong as a character, as a person, but it was also just technically amazing. That was another one I got to see in IMAX, and for that movie in particular, they filmed all of the scenes. On the moon, quote on the moon, um, they filmed them in IMAX cameras. So when the character of Neil Armstrong steps down onto the surface of the moon, the whole screen expanded. So you had the entire screen filled, and it was just like this hugely immersive experience. Because the rest of the film was shot on 16 millimeter, it felt very contained, very old school. Um, so that that's my number three. My number two is Apollo 13. I think we already talked a little bit Other, about. Yeah. Uh, it's just a it's just a great. It's feel good movie. It's a great movie. Um, Tom Hanks gives a great performance. Lots of good supporting performances in that as well. My number one is a, maybe a little bit of a cheat, but it's not entirely space set. But it's a pretty recent film. It's called Arrival. Does that one with, count? Because uh, we
3: talked about this. I don't
2: know. It's, I don't, it's a, it's on I don't my think Arrival it counts. <laughs> it's on your list.
0: Okay. There's you no know, like, like
3: flight sequences or yeah. anything. All
0: right. If, if two of you, you know have it on your it's list, I think list,
2: we'll have to count so, it. so uh yeah, so you know what? You know it's my it's my
0: list. So oh, you right. now guys I've can my list all you because want. I didn't know it was say, allowed. I would say Arrival <laughs> violates the requirements of it being both a space movie and not a like fantasy movie. <laughs> I,
2: I don't I don't think it's actually fantasy. I mean like there are aliens but it's right. done in a way that, you know, it, it's portrayed as realistic. It's not like you're you're in the the cantina in Star Wars where there's just like aliens <laughs> playing music.
0: <laughs> you
2: know, I I watched Arrival in its own right.
0: I watched Arrival when I was deployed. And away from my family. And there's of course like the devastating sadness at the yeah. end. And all I could think about were my two daughters. And I was just oh like God. sobbing. Yeah. Haven't seen it since. But a great, great film, but it was a little it was a little emotionally powerful for me at the time. Yeah, okay. so whatever. It's
2: my list. I'm putting it at number one. <laughs> so there you go.
0: All right, Chandler. You you already said you have a rival on your list, so we know that one.
1: Yeah. Um, so I I think um First Man is is really good. I think that's an honorable mention for me. I'm gonna have to say number three. Um, I I I I almost um, feel bad about putting Interstellar as my number three. I really I, I've got some problems with Interstellar, but um, it really kind of hit me when I saw it in theaters for the first time, and I really responded to it the first time I saw it. And so because of that, I have a lot of affection for it. Even though on subsequent viewings, I saw some sure, flaws, yeah. but That's my number three. Uh, Arrival is at number two. Um, Again, just, I mean, I think with all of these, it's just because that first viewing was just so powerful. Because the thing I love about space movies is that they have this kind of sense of power and grandeur to them. Especially the first time. Yeah, Yeah. right. And especially seeing it in theater. And so um, Arrival um, really kind of got me there too. And, uh, and then 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, even though it's a really weird movie uh, and um, has some kind of weird ideas floating around, especially in the last, like, 30 minutes. But um, that one, I didn't see it in theaters. I wasn't born when it was in theaters. So that's but your I, number one? That's my number one. Nice. I saw it on a big screen, and same thing. It just cool. really kind of socked me.
0: Okay. Lara.
3: All right. Well, now that Arrival is
0: It's fair allowed. game now. It's, yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, Okay, I, I'm going to say First Man is my number one. Mm. Um. Oh, sorry. Going it's okay, backwards. reverse order. It's okay, fine. reverse order. Probably, <laughs> Look, we're making up all our own
0: rules. Yeah. Okay.
3: Um, I gonna I'm gonna say there's a tie between Apollo 13 and the right stuff.
0: Oh, nice. Those I I read that book. Really, I haven't seen the movie, really but the book is ones. amazing.
3: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Those are just like great classic. So it sounds like you things.
0: value the historical retellings that are yeah realistic yeah yeah.
3: I yeah those are just I think those are those are pretty classic ones um and then I would say um Arrival would be number two and First Man at number one
0: nice it's a good list I like it I need I still need to see the right stuff um okay my list I will also put Interstellar on there and like you, Chandler, I have issues with that. I think anytime you have like a three-hour movie, you're going to find some issues with it. Yeah, sure. And space travel is just fraught when you're when you're portraying that on film for a whole bunch of reasons. You can have like technical hangups with the cinematography, um, the science people are going to come after you for all kinds of things. Like I remember Interstellar got got a lot of criticism for the pencil through the paper illustration. Yeah, right. You know, he's just like, let me illustrate uh, gravity and, and uh, time warp to you. Um interstellar i thought was uh it was sweeping it was very ambitious in its aims maybe not quite reaching that ambition in its execution uh but one of my favorites like my favorite uh scenes in any movie is that scene on interstellar where they go down to the planet with intense gravity yeah, yeah. and there's that you know i don't know thousand foot high tidal wave uh yeah. just like very very impressive
1: and then the devastating like they come back and the guy's like yeah 30 years old yeah exactly
0: so um just that whole sequence i just i love that sequence in the movie um so interstellar is my number three apollo 13 is my number two i mean it's hard to get much better than tom hanks like showing us a an amazing chapter of american space travel history it's just so cool and then my number one i already said it on this podcast but the martian i just love that movie everything about that's it
3: that's one that I need to rewatch I think I fell asleep it's it's
0: it. one that I love it's one that I love so much that it's hard for me to have like have an honest conversation with myself or anybody else about the shortcomings of that movie because <laughs> I'm just so into it and think it's so perfect so uh, I'm not super rational about my love for the Martian but those are my top three Zach, um, did you read the
2: book before you saw the movie no I read it after Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's probably why I don't love the movie as much as I sure. really love the book. I thought it was really well done, but because I read the book first, I was like, and eh, the movie, it
0: just doesn't quite live up to what I had in my head. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I can definitely see that. I think it's obviously different going the other way around, but I did really appreciate the book. Um, okay. Final thing I want to do, just give this a one to 10 rating and a, a go see in theaters recommend or not recommend because uh, I think the movie's worth seeing. I think we'd all agree on that. Yeah. But, but maybe it's not worth, you know, spending, depending on where you live, 8 to $14 to see it in theaters. So let's do a 1 to 10 rating and then a theater recommendation. I will give this, 1 one being the worst, 10 being the best, I will give this movie a solid 6 and I will give it a theater recommendation only because of the big screen experience and the cinematography and, and space travel. So, Laura, how about you?
3: I also would give it a 6. And I yeah, I think that all... Space related movies should be seen in theater yeah. on the big screen.
0: It's just, we have a, like we have a 32 inch TV in our house. And yeah, so our, if our other option is watching on that, you know, that's like a, that's like a large yeah. computer monitor. Yeah.
3: So, yeah. And, yeah, and in IMAX that, that would be even, yeah. even cooler. Yeah.
0: I just, I lucked into that because the, the time that I had to go see it, the only showing in my theater was IMAX. So I would have gone standard just to save the two bucks or whatever, but I'm, I'm kind of glad it was IMAX because it was, it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. We live in a small town, so IMAX is really far away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I i would give um uh Ad Astra can i can I split it? Can I get oh, a for, for seven point sure. yeah. five out of ten? Yeah. Cool. That's seven point five, okay. And I definitely I definitely recommend it, definitely seeing it in theater. Okay. I th- and again I think that if you get into it in the first twenty or thirty minutes, I think you're gonna enjoy it. And if you don't like the first twenty or thirty minutes, I think you're gonna be annoyed for the rest of the
0: movie. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Josh.
2: I give it a five and a half out of 10. I I definitely, um, I wanted to love it more. I think that the biggest thing is that, you know, we had a huge discussion about this movie on this podcast and we barely talked about what I think was meant to be the central plot point of the father-son relationship. And I think because of that, I mean, that's, that's what really brought it down for me. Like, I feel like that didn't have enough resonance with me personally, but it sounds like all of us to a certain degree that, that to me was supposed to be the point of the movie. And because we didn't really get into that, like it wasn't important enough to talk about. And we talked about space baboons longer than we talked about the father son relationship. So, I mean, it baboons was baboons are peripheral beautiful. throughout <laughs> the whole conversation. <laughs> the space baboons are but the father son <laughs> relationship. Yeah, exactly. I will say I paid $18 to see this on IMAX. Whoa, DC you live in an, is an expensive not, area DC is holy all yeah, I did have a, a gift card, so I actually only ended up paying $5 the nice. difference, but it was $18. So, um, And I will say, you know, if you're going to see it, see it in theaters. If you have no interest in seeing it at all, like, don't, don't wait. It's not worth seeing on a TV. And I will say this because. Um, you know, when I saw Gravity, which I've heard is incredible on a big screen, I saw it on a 32 inch TV and it, or maybe even a 50 inch TV. And it just was it was like not great. It I'm was laughing like, because
0: I'm laughing because when I first saw Gravity, it was on an airplane TV screen, <laughs> oh, so no, the little like, no. you know, the seven inch screen on the back of the screen. That seat. is not right. And I was like, this is horrible. <laughs>
1: OK, I, I will also say this. So this this movie um, was an 80 million dollar movie. An independent, or not independent, but it was—it was not a franchise movie, um, from uh, a writer-director who, you know, is not like a big name director. At least, like most people, I think, unlike a guy like Christopher Nolan or um, Tarantino or Scorsese or something like that, um, I don't think that your average person is going to be drawn if you say James Gray, um, and you know, it's—it's it's asking, it's got a lot of big things on its mind and so for that reason i'm really excited to see a movie like this get made i don't think it's going to make back its budget which makes me nervous um because i think that i want to see more movies like this being made um and so if you're out there and you are on the fence i'd say go see it go support support filmmakers go support filmmakers yeah okay
0: that's uh that's fair advice
1: James
2: Gray has been pretty vocal about the fact that this movie was a 20th Century Fox movie in the, in the time between when they shot it and when it was released, 20th Century Fox was purchased by Disney and Disney was sort of like, well, we've got this film, we have to release it. But he's been pretty vocal about, I've never really gotten support in terms of like the release of my films. Like, I don't think the ad campaign for this was very good like I saw a bunch of posters but it, to me it wasn't clear what the movie was and if you look at the if you look at the critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes versus the the popular rating they're so different the critical rating is like 81% and the the popular rating from the audience is in the 40s yeah. so like clearly people went to this movie and were like this is not what i expected this is not mm-hmm. what i wanted so i can't imagine a lot of people are recommending it to their friends to go see
0: that's a good point. I mean, it, this this is operating in the world of the Martian and Interstellar. So I think people, especially, I mean, I played portions of that trailer. That trailer sets it up like a super dramatic, intense space travel movie with some personal father son drama woven throughout to to sort of carry the narrative. And That's not really what it is, you know. It's like, uh, I guess it's the other way around. You know, it's 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 a really a father son drama movie, and even it's sort of light on that drama, like Josh you pointed out, and that's kind of your one of your big critiques and then it has the space travel stuff punctuated by space pirates and space baboons to sort of sustain the narrative as it goes. So in that sense, it's sort of the inverse. Um, But this has been a good discussion guys. I'm going to end it here. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to another episode of vernacular podcast. I mentioned at the outset that Josh and Chandler are both filmmakers. You can of course, listen to the podcast and hear Josh more. Uh, uh, giving you your weekly pop culture dose uh, on the vernacular podcast network at The Popcast. You can also check out some of his work. He runs 22nd Street Imaging, and if you search 22nd Street Imaging on YouTube, you can see uh, Josh's short films and some of the work he's done. And then Chandler, I don't want to get your, your film website wrong, so where can people find your work?
1: Yeah, well, my website is just com. ChandlerRide.com. You can also find me on Instagram ChandlerRide.
0: Alright perfect so yeah go go ahead and check out Chandler and Josh's work and the three of you I want to thank you for joining me on this episode to talk about Ad Astra and all things space movie related. It was a lot of fun. To our listeners if you want to give some feedback or reach out to any of my guests here go ahead and send us an email Sally at VernacularPodcast.com and we'll be back with another episode in two weeks. You know how-